Chapter Sixteen of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pam Moscato. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybot. Chapter Sixteen. Peace on earth, good will towards men. It is the old message of the Christmas tide repeated annually for many centuries, yet always welcomed and rejoiced in. Peace on earth. God's earth today, not man's, and therefore peaceful indeed. The very atmosphere is different from yesterday, and unlike what may be expected tomorrow. One should drink deeply thereof, for it is soon adulterated. Goodwill towards men. For this one day, goodwill towards men. 364 days for envy, hatred, and malice, just one day for charity. Therefore make the most of it. Forgive, and if possible, forget. Goodwill towards men. Colonel St. John went to the window of his Jackson City residence, breathed on the frosty pane, rubbed it clear with his coat sleeve, and looked out. The Potomac was frozen almost solid, and the long bridge, outlined in snow and fringed with icicles, glittered in the sunshine, while above the snow-draped roofs and steeples the Washington Monument merged its stately shaft into the horizon. Colonel St. John had an eye for the beautiful and admired the picture, even while he cursed his ill luck, for destiny obliged him to walk across that glistening bridge, and it was very slippery. The slothfulness of Jackson City by daylight bears but little resemblance to its activity by night, and but few pedestrians were abroad to wish Colonel St. John a Merry Christmas as he closed and locked his front door, turned up the collar of his coat, and sallied forth. One small voice did indeed venture to salute him with the Christmas gift of the South, and he flung a silver dollar at the little darky, who sprang gleefully to pick it up, astonished at the munificence of the gift. Colonel St. John felt warmer and more cheerful as he parted with the coin. He almost believed himself a well-disposed, charitable fellow, after all, but a victim of circumstances. It was nearly noon when he ascended the steps of the Octagon House and pushed open the front door with a furtive look up and down the street, as though fearing someone would question his right of entrance. The cheerless exterior of the old red-brick structure presented a marked contrast to the neighboring residences, with wreaths of holly in their windows, and the indefinable air of festivity inseparable from the season. The octagon house was not decked with holly, nor were any evidences of goodwill apparent to the casual observer. Peaceful indeed it might be considered, if by peace is understood the pall of silence which envelops long unused rooms, where the fall of a footstep reverberates with hollow distinctness, and the sound of a voice awakens unexpected and unwelcome echoes, which die away reluctantly, as though unwilling to become even an integral portion of the oppressively obtrusive space. Colonel St. John shivered as he mounted the winding staircase, and hastened towards the room at the top of the house, where he had placed a cot and a few articles of furniture, among them an oil stove whose warmth he felt would be most acceptable. He had an engagement that morning, which admitted of no postponement, also a bit of unfinished work which must be completed where he felt secure from interruption. So he lighted his stove, and drawing the small table close to it, bent anxiously over the sheet of tracing paper with its unfinished outlines and marginal notes which awaited his attention. 
He worked carefully for some minutes, then dropped his pen and pushed back his chair impatiently. The oil stove smoked and filled the atmosphere with its pungent and unpleasant odor, but Colonel St. John sat absorbed in thought, unconscious of his surroundings, and oblivious of the fleeting moments. After a while he drew from his pocket a shabby leather case and studied its contents with interest. It contained two likenesses, one a woman in the full glory of her young beauty, the other a laughing baby. Colonel St. John glanced casually at the woman, but scrutinized the baby closely. The wife of the Secretary of State, he ejaculated aloud, his wife. Laying the open case upon the table at his side, he resumed his pen while his lips parted in a slow, sinister smile, and his close-set eyes narrowed until they seemed like mere slits. Meanwhile, downstairs, the front door swung slowly open. It was not essential to be provided with a key in order to enter the octagon house. Indeed, its lock had long ago refused to work, and no one had considered it necessary to repair it. The visitor advanced to the rear of the hall with the manner of one familiar with his surroundings, and passing through a door at the left, began his ascent to the top by means of a back stairway so constructed as to be entirely separate and apart from the rest of the house. He moved quietly, picking his way with care and occasionally pausing to brush a bit of dust or cobweb from his coat, for the spiders had long been busy on the old back stairs. And again the front door opened and shut, its creaking hinges complaining fretfully of overwork. Out in the garden the snow lay smooth and spotless, covering even the broken wall with its kindly mantle of purity. Had anyone glanced from the large window on the landing, they might have seen a woman force her way through the gap and over the unsteady pile of bricks at its base. She moved quickly, holding her long, dark cloak closely about her, and advancing with the steady determination which permits not even a glance to the right or the left, lest progress may thereby be retarded. The rusty latch of the back door yielded reluctantly to her touch as she slipped quietly inside and looked about. She was quite alone. The spiders on the back stairs told no tales of the disturber of their peace who had so recently passed that way, and the stairs themselves looked dark and uninviting, so she hesitated a moment, then went into the front hall, stopping now and then to listen and drawing her cloak closer, as though to keep the penetrating chill of the place from reaching her heart. At the foot of the stairs she paused, her hand on the rail. Was that a noise? Only a mouse in the wall, she murmured as she began the ascent. Colonel St. John, bending over the little table, was conscious of a draft. A blast of cold air struck the back of his neck unpleasantly, and with a muttered malediction on the untrustworthy latch of the door, he rose to investigate. A woman stood on the threshold, tall and slender, with both hands raised to untie the dark veil which obscured her face. The hand shook slightly, and the knot proved obstinate. But at last the veil was removed, and she looked full at the old man, who stared incredulously in return, his jaw dropping and his lips twitching uncontrollably. "'Estelle?' he ejaculated at last. "'Estelle?' "'Yes,' she replied slowly. "'Estelle.' "'You are alone?' he whispered apprehensively, after several ineffectual efforts to speak. "'Quite alone,' she returned coldly. "'I am in your power, not you in mine.' Colonel St. John's countenance resumed its normal expression, and he placed a chair for his guest with a suggestion of the courtly manner for which he had once been famous. "'So you recognized me yesterday,' he remarked easily, 
with the casual manner of one desirous of making conversation. She nodded absently. It was most kind in you to look me up so soon, he continued cordially. I confess I did not expect it. She opened her bag and produced a blank check, which she folded unconsciously into little squares. How much will you take to leave the country? she inquired curtly. Colonel St. John adjusted the wick of his oil-stove carefully, and eyed the bit of pink paper with genuine admiration. The world has gone well with you, my dear, he remarked thoughtfully. I rejoice in your good fortune. Perhaps some reflected glory may fall on me, though as yet I have not profited. A board in the hall without creaked suddenly, and Ho crossed quickly to the door and opened it. The passage was quite empty, and Colonel St. John shrugged his shoulders skeptically as he returned to his visitor. I am expecting Vladimir, he remarked casually. I thought he might perhaps have arrived. Estelle Redmond had risen, and as the old man advanced, lifted her eyes to his eyes, no longer blue and cold, with a spark of anger in them, but purple and softened by a mist of tears. Father, she whispered involuntarily. Father. His brow contracted suddenly, and he sank into the chair beside the table, while she bent over him, her hand upon his shoulder, and a loose tendril of her hair brushing his wrinkled cheek. Father, she repeated gently, you'll go away, won't you? I have been so happy, she continued, after waiting a moment for a reply. I'm married, had you heard? I never met an honorable man before. I don't think I even knew the word until my husband introduced me to it. I never realized the way good men looked at things, things we did, you know, and I would rather die than have him hear about them. Somewhere outside a sleigh passed, the sound of its jingling bells forcing itself obtrusively into the quiet room. As she again paused for a reply, she noticed the open case upon the table, with its rubbed and faded cover, and the two faces, the woman and the baby. Estelle carefully brushed a speck of dust from the face of the woman. For her sake, she said softly, let me be happy for her sake, father. Colonel St. John raised his head and looked beyond his daughter. A quiet movement of the doorknob had arrested his attention, and his eyes focused anxiously upon it. Very slowly the door opened, a little way only, but far enough for the old man to see distinctly the finger placed on the lips of the listening face, a finger imperatively commanding silence, even as the eyes which met his managed to convey a threat. Colonel St. John made an effort to speak and shook off the little hand which lay on his, as though fearing it might convey some subtle and undue influence. "'You'll go away,' said the soft voice close to his ear. "'Every month I'll send you money, and you can live somewhere quietly and honestly. My life's happiness is at stake, you understand, don't you?' Yes, he understood. Colonel St. John was not lacking in intelligence and fully appreciated the situation. It seemed to him to contain a surprising number of possibilities, and he could not help wishing he had been allowed to deal with it alone and unobserved. As it was, however, the door moved ever so little, and he felt it was incumbent upon him to speak. Was it quite prudent in you to come here this morning? He inquired with the impersonal manner of a wholly disinterested observer, and his daughter straightened herself abruptly with a disappointed sigh. I might have known, she said bitterly. I might have known. The folded check fell upon the floor, and he stopped furtively to pick it up. It's not signed, he whispered eagerly, coming closer. Estelle, 
you've forgotten to sign it my my dear the door was wide open now but the whole attention of the old man was concentrated upon the bit of creased pink paper here's a pen he continued turning to the table you like a stub i know you see i still remember your tastes my dear a stub pen and very black ink he smoothed out the check carefully and dipped the pen in the ink now he exclaimed persuasively now my dear child but the hand which closed upon the pen was larger than colonel st john expected and he turned swiftly his assured manner giving way to a deprecating smile as count vladimir tore the check in bits and contemptuously tossed aside the fragments so said that gentleman is the greed for money so great you choose to ignore the fact i could both see and hear a family matter count the colonel stammered uneasily a little gift for my daughter nothing more mrs redmond had crossed the room and stood leaning her forehead against the dusty pane of a closed window whose broken shutter admitted little rays of light which seemed mere suggestions of the cheerful world without in its holiday array the russian watched her a moment in silence then followed her quietly had you not better go home he suggested gently believe me it was a mistake to come here you should have trusted me i did not intend he should annoy you except well she said as he paused uncertainly except except as a last resort he returned slowly you understand she did not reply and the old man behind them bent sharply forward almost losing his balance in his anxiety to hear the whispered words it is not easy to outwit me continued count vladimir after a moment's silence nor is it safe to defy me i set a price upon your happiness and it remains with you to pay is it worth the price mrs redmond slowly turned and faced the two men the shadows beneath her eyes showed dark and distinct in marked contrast to the pallor of her cheeks which seemed to have suddenly lost their rounded contour and become chalk-like and hollow ignoring the russian at her side she addressed colonel st john who involuntarily bent his gaze upon the floor and shuffled his feet uneasily after the manner of one who would fain escape an ordeal i came here this morning she said intending to bribe you to leave the country but when i saw you i remembered you were my father and after all the tie of blood is strong i appealed to you for my mother's sake for i always cherished the thought you must once have loved her i see however i was wrong oh she continued her voice breaking uncontrollably isn't it enough to have ruined your own life is it necessary hush interrupted count vladimir imperatively he stepped softly into the hall and listened intently returning after a moment's breathless silence he carefully closed the door and attempted to turn the key it won't lock said the old man tremulously it won't lock be silent commanded count vladimir in a sharp whisper the sound of footsteps was distinctly audible upon the bare boards of the floor below wandering footsteps apparently with no especial destination in view for they ceased entirely now and then as though undecided whether to retreat or advance and finally could be heard descending the stairs with many pauses and an evident inclination to return to the upper regions count vladimir nodded towards a partly open door at his left does that room communicate with the hall he inquired abruptly colonel st john shook his head its only outlet is through here he replied the footsteps ceased for a moment then recommenced this time again in the ascendant quick 
said the Russian, touching Mrs. Redmond on the shoulder and pointing to the inner room. As she hesitated a moment, looking distrustfully at the faces of the two men, he leaned forward and whispered a single word. Mrs. Redmond lingered no longer. With an apprehensive glance towards the hall, she hastened into the bare little inner room and heard the click of the latch as the door closed after her. With a quick revulsion of feeling, she put out her hand to again open the door, but discovered only the blank surface presented by the inside of an ordinary closet door. There was no knob, and the latch was on the other side. Colonel St. John smiled as he heard the snap of the latch. In obedience to a gesture of his companion, however, he made no remark, but turned a strained attention to the footsteps, which drew nearer, passed the door, paused on the upper landing, repassed, and again descended the stairs, briskly now, as one having a definite purpose in view. As the sound became gradually fainter, Count Vladimir cautiously reconnoitred. Returning after an absence of some minutes, he beckoned the old man to follow him, and together they descended the stairs, until they reached the large window on the first landing. Look, he said, indicating the garden below, and Colonel St. John looked. He saw an expanse of snow, white and unbroken, save where someone had recently passed from the gap in the wall to the old back door. He saw also a man walking towards the wall, moving slowly with bent head, as though deep in thought. Lindhurst, said the Russian briefly. The old man made an inarticulate sound somewhere between a gasp and a snarl, and shrank back against the baluster. Do you realize what he is doing? Colonel St. John shook his head, speech having for the time deserted him. He is following your daughter's footprints in the snow. Devil take the woman, muttered Colonel St. John, suddenly recovering the use of his tongue. They always make complications. He wiped his moist brow with his handkerchief, and vainly endeavored to control the shaking of his hand, while his companion watched him coolly, a faint smile curving his lips, and a contemptuous expression in his half-closed eyes. America is getting hot, eh, Colonel? He remarked quietly. It behooves you to finish my work and vanish. Well, he resumed, after waiting in vain for a reply, there is not much more to do. The crisis, Colonel, is approaching. Do you go on duty as watchman today? Good. The secretary has in his possession the synopsis of the president's policy in regard to the Roostchuk matter. I desire the paper in my possession within the next few days. It is in his private desk and no doubt locked, but those are simple obstacles to an expert like yourself. Suppose, said the old man slowly, suppose, Count, I cannot find it. What then? Why dwell on unpleasant subjects, Colonel? The details would be painful. One more thing, he continued and Colonel St. John gazed fixedly at the double row of large and small footprints in the snow with the manner of one who expects to take his heels at any moment. As Count Vladimir paused impressively, however, he turned his head, and with an obvious effort recalled his wandering attention. Yes, he said anxiously. The Russian came closer and laid his hand on the old man's shoulder, his fingers fastening with a grip as of steel. You are not to annoy, Tyr, he said. I will not have it. No extorting money, no blackmail. Count Vladimir perhaps prefers to keep such privileges for himself, returned the other with a sneer. The fingers on his shoulder tightened until he winced involuntarily. Sometimes, said Count Vladimir through his teeth, I wonder I can soil my hands with a tool like you. The usual dull apathy of Colonel St. John's eyes was replaced by a gleam of hatred, but he made no reply, and his companion curtly continued, You will do my work, and when I am through with you, 
leave the country. You will not attempt to see her again, or to communicate with her. It is wise to accede to my terms, Colonel. Lyndhurst and the police are ever ready, and I should have no scruples on your behalf. You shall not annoy her. Do you understand? Colonel St. John shook himself free of the restraining hand. If I am not to see her again, he said sullenly, who is to let her out of that room? Estelle Redmond, alone in the little room, heard the two men go downstairs and fully realized her position. Sinking upon the floor, she rested her head upon the dusty window-ledge and tried to think. Was it all coming to an end? Was this to be the outcome of the marriage which had opened to her a new life, made beautiful by the sheltering care of a great and unselfish love? Must her past life be laid bare before her husband's eyes? Must he know of a child who had had no childhood, of a girl taught to value the beauty with which she was endowed because of the power that accompanied it, a girl without a girlhood, a girl familiar with the seamy side of life? Must he know of her father's vocation, of hasty flights from city to city when the police became troublesome? Was it necessary he should hear the story of Berlin, of Bertie Hertford, with his ingenuous, boyish face and frank confidence in mankind in general, Bertie Hertford, who lost his all over the green bias card tables in her father's salon, and who, under the influence of the moon and her own blue eyes, confided the state secret of his mission to Berlin, which she in turn retailed to her father, who sold it to the Russian government for much gold? Estelle St. John, at eighteen, had not understood why she was delegated to extract this information, and had exulted in her ability to obtain it. Estelle Redmond, at twenty-eight, understood fully, and felt to the utmost the unavailing bitterness of regret. The tragic death of Hertford, with the note addressed to herself, had been a terrible awakening. She had carried it to her father, with blanched cheeks and tear-dimmed, wondering eyes. What did it mean? And Colonel St. John had laughed and shrugged his shoulders. My dear, he had said indifferently, all young men are fools. Your eyes and complexion, and above all your ingenious manner, constitute my best stock in trade. Estelle remembered it all with sickening distinctness, as she pressed her white forehead against the dusty window-sill. The headlines in the papers, the slow awakening to the meaning of her life, the arrival of Lyndhurst in Berlin, with his declared intention of investigation and punishment, and their own hasty departure at night for Paris. She remembered her life in Paris, deserted by her father, almost penniless and quite desperate, the two years of painful effort to live by honest labor, and then the chance meeting with her husband, and his generous answer to her reluctant offer to tell him her history. If it hurts you to tell me, sweetheart, don't do it forget everything nothing matters but dishonor and you could not look at me with those true blue eyes if all was not well let us be happy in each other nothing matters but dishonor the words rang in her ears must she lose everything rather than make one bold stroke for happiness must she cause misery to him as well as herself from weakness at a crucial moment the latch of the door moved and she sprang quickly to her feet it is safe for you to go, madam, said Count Vladimir, standing aside that she might pass out. Your father will not cause you further trouble. It will not be necessary for you to consider him at all. Thank you, she said quietly. You are very good, Count. He stooped to recover her veil, which had fallen to the floor, and held the hand extended to receive it somewhat longer than necessary. It is your happiness I have at heart, he whispered softly. Your happiness and mine, Estelle. Were you afraid? he continued breathlessly afraid shut in that empty room alone mrs redmond slowly withdrew her hand i was not afraid 
she said with a sudden lowering of her black lashes, because I knew you would not forget me. She moved towards the door, but paused on the threshold and looked back. This house is strangely lonely, she remarked with a shiver. Will you not see me safely to the street, Count Vladimir? End of chapter 16 Recording by Pam Moscato.